Welcome to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. This episode is produced in cooperation with Independent Art Fair New York City. It will be part of the Fair's 2023 OVR. I'm Daniela, and this podcast is about my personal and also about a lot of other people's enthusiasm for art. Art can touch on all parts of life, and therefore we talk about all parts of life. I hope to get you on board and to tell you interesting stories you enjoy listening to. We're recording via the internet, so please excuse any glitches and sound quality. Episode 80, recorded April 6, 2023. My guest is artist Beverly Simmers, who will be showing work at this year's Independent Art Fair with Cup and Cup, as well as with the joint presentation at Susan Inglet and Specific Objects. Hi, Beverly. Happy to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. <laughs> as you know, we're always going back to the beginnings, and I wanted to ask you, When you were growing up, what were the important influences? What made you decide to become an artist? You know, there was not, I was going to say a lot, but there wasn't really any art per se in my family's life or anything that we would have considered art, might I say. I grew up in the suburbs outside of Maryland, and my parents were both from little towns in the South. Anyway, there was no orientation even to, to even literature or music either. Not really a place. It wasn't grim or anything, but that was not what they were aware of even, I guess, at that point. Oh. Um, except for my grandmother who lived with us and was my father's mother. It's always the grandmother so often in the talks <laughs> really? I have. Like, you know, it's like, especially the women, mm -hmm. so often it's like the grandmothers. Kind of yeah. like with me, it's the same, actually, my grandma. Yeah, my grandmother, uh, Fanny was her name, and she lived with us. And she, so it wasn't art as far as anyone was concerned, but she mm -hmm. made all her own clothes, and she made my clothes, and she made my doll's clothes. And so she was creative. She was creative. She was handy. You know, she, mm -hmm. was a, she was always busy with these things. There were other aunts in my life, too, and great aunts who did would have called what they did something closer to art. Like they would have called it craft. Mm -hmm. I don't think my grandmother even would have called what she did craft, you know. But it was craft. Although it was probably a craft that was like related to what at that time probably would be thought of as like women's craft. Yes. Yes, mm -hmm. very much so. Like knitting and sewing yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And for her, you know, she was... A big person. She was six feet high. She was big all around. And she didn't find an easy time of it buying clothes she liked. She would have thought of it, I think, more like problem solving, you know, that she, she needed clothes. And, um, but she had a great feel for fabrics, of course, and structure. And then aunts who were doing ceramics, more like from molds and things that were more a couple of aunts who did like, you know, big crochet projects or some clay so yeah and I was really into this um to Fanny and uh kind of inseparable from her from what I understand so um yeah so I guess that that's what I'd pinpoint you know by the time I got to high school I had a good great art teacher Mary Bloom and I'm still in touch with her I've heard it also quite sometimes that teachers like good yeah. teachers they are yeah. so important so any teacher please yeah you have a big influence 
use it for the good, please. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's um, a, a teacher can make a huge amount of difference. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And someone, you know, giving it everything during those years is a, is a great influence. And then for me to have uh, Mary Bloom in my life for the few years after that, I mean, I'm in touch with her now, but I was very much in touch with her for like the five years after our high school class that made a big difference to me. And then I was living outside of Washington and there were museums and things that she could introduce us to that just, um, you know, blew my mind. And, and a lot of other people's, I think, that she was influential to a lot of the other students in the class. My best friend, Juan Iribarren, is lives here in New York and was in my class. That's where I met him. He's And he's an artist living in New York. So, uh, so this little world. And you still have close friends from that time. From that high school class, yeah. Crazy. Yeah, that's also pretty yeah. amazing. Never underestimate the influence of a teacher. Absolutely. Mm. <laughs> But still, the difference between, you know, loving art, being introduced into it, and then really deciding to, to go that way. You, were you aware what that could mean to be an artist? What that decision was? Were you then going to an art school? Or how did you proceed from, from high school? You know, I don't think my parents were particularly thrilled about my, I mean, I know they weren't particularly interested in my interest in art. And I even, my mother worked and um, I don't even think she was particularly super supportive to my great interest in all the, as you called them, women's crafts. You know, I think she would have been, found it sort of uh, backwards in some way or something. So yeah, my parents were, you know, trying to be supportive to me, but no, I, I tried really hard to do something else. What was that? What did you try? I tried a lot of things. <laughs> I tried. I wanted to be pre-law for a while, which is a little hard to imagine me as a lawyer, but I got somewhere with it um, before I went a different way. And then I thought maybe art history would be a way to be involved with art and um, mm. not be an artist. And uh, that didn't quite stick either. But uh, it took a while. I went to a few different schools. I dropped out. I lived at home for a while. I just It was um, a little of a turned up period until I finally committed myself, you know, more fully to it, realized I wasn't going to talk myself out of it. How old were you when you committed to art? Mm, 25, maybe 24, 25. And it's still young. Yeah, yeah it's still young. Yeah. From our perspective anyway, yeah. From our perspective, yeah. But for me, it felt like a, a few tough years, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. When you decided that, did you just start making stuff or did you go to an art school or how did you proceed from there? I ended up getting a BFA from art school and then an MFA and then moving to New York all kind of uh, one after the other. Um, yeah. And then the, the sort of world of, of being an artist opened up at that point. And then when I moved to New York, I worked for a couple of artists and waitress where I met other young artists and, uh, you know, working for artists was great. Yeah, that's always very important mm, to have that discussion. Exactly. Community. Yeah, People community, be part of that scene to understand right. what, what it means to be an artist and where you can go from there. How do you start if you're alone? That's very hard. Right, right, mm -hmm. right. I um, moved into a building in Little Italy in New York, this family the Kobayachis owned, and uh, I shared a studio with Robert Kobayachi, who was an older Japanese artist who was raised in Hawaii, and uh, I actually just curated a show at Susan Inglet Gallery, it's still up, of Robert's work. He was known as Kobe. 
I kind of chanced into living in this apartment building. And then Kobe and his wife Kate offered me as to rent a studio in the back of the storefront and uh, share it with them, essentially. That was a really meaningful situation also that happened when I first moved to New York. Why was that meaningful? They were just great people. They had a community of artists. There was, there was a little exhibition space. Kobe was an eccentric, known a bit, kind of contextualized now as a outsider or in, in Susan called him an insider outsider, I think. He was, um, you know, Little Italy right on the edges of Soho, not very far from where the action was during these, we're talking about the 80s at this point, mid-80s. Kobe did his own thing. He had worked at MoMA for years, and um, a lot of his work looked a little more influenced by pointillism and Cezanne than it looked like a little more conceptual or whatever was going on. Did it influence your work as well, or was it rather the way he was, the way they lived, the way they treated you that was influential? I think both things. I think mm -hmm. both things. I mean, I was influenced by his, There was a certain dreaminess in his work, mm -hmm. always. And I felt like it entered my work. At the, they were very dreamy years living on that street of Elizabeth Street. It was still very little Italy and uh, had just a, a foot in old New York in some way. That was very sweet. And the space itself was sweet. Mm -hmm. And um, our friendship was nice with this family, my friendship with the family. Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what the influence is because, of course, our work looks very different. But there was some energy exchange. Yes, and it was very family also. You know, it was a, a family-like situation. Um, meals together, coffees together. And also it seems you have these long-term relationships. It's something yes. you have long-term friendships. <laughs> I do, I guess I do, yeah. yeah. That is also something important, I think, that, mm. that this world, this art world lives on relation also. Yes, yes, very much. You know, on, on influencing each other, on supporting each other, on seeing each other. All these things are so important. I mean, it's always wonderful to meet new friends, mm -hmm. but there is something about people who've known you a very long time who sometimes can follow threads in your work that you can't even see yourself. You know, you're so close and they can see this connects to something you did 20 years ago. Or this reminds me of this when this happened. You know? I remember, when did you start those dresses? Because I think I've seen something in New York, maybe in the 90s. Right, right. I remember them, them pretty well because they had, I mean, you're talking yourself about that they had something powerful, you know, because they're so big, so long. Right, scale. <laughs> yeah, scale, scale, just scale. But also something, I don't know if, if you see that way, but they had also something really soft. Because of the fabric, I think. Soft. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're talking about sweetness. And there was something, although they were, they had this scale and were so much bigger than life, they had these long, thin arms. And, and there was mm -hmm, also something mm -hmm. soft about them. That's, that's how I remember. I was still a student at that time when I saw. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you use that kind of material and relating to the female body and all of yeah, the craftsmanship involved. Was that something that you kind of like trace back to your grandma, consciously or unconsciously? Or how did that come about that you were starting to work that way? You know, I was working with 
something closer to art type materials and sculpture mm-hmm. materials when I was in. I mean, I was always interested in textures and I'd come a little closer to being in a more strict, what I would have called sculpture at that point mm-hmm. category in school. And when I finished school and when I moved into that space in Little Lily behind the storefront, you know, I had this idea that I wanted to sew some clothing that I was going to wear or have friends wear and do some maybe film or performance mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. kind of walk away from you know, sculpture or painting. So the first clothes that I made were costumes in my head for something else. And I did some little Super 8 films and took them to various situations and tortured various friends of mine into wearing these, you know, they were overscale, but they were still very, they were wearable still. And that was the beginning of it. And at a certain point, I realized that it they interested me more hanging on a hanger in the corner of the studio empty than they did in the films and whatever performance. I didn't quite have an action I wanted them to do, so there wasn't any big reason to animate them. Their softness, I, I was aware of, of accepting the vulnerability of the material and switching scale at the same time to make them take over the space and be aggressive in terms of their scale and, and sort of push a viewer even to the edges of the of a space. A few people would ever walk on the fabric once it was there in the in the space, even though it laid itself out and made it possible for someone to to walk on it or whatever else, do something else. So um it was a place I was aware of inhabiting even then. Yeah. And I was aware of thinking about my grandmother at that point. At some point, and they're pulling out my sewing machine, you know, which had been her sewing machine. And I also found a kind of uh, naturalness to it. Like the whole way that I had made art up until that point in school was like there was a work part of it. I mean, there's always a struggle, but there was something, one thing didn't flow into the next. And then when I started working with fabric and I decided they were sculptures, there was like a flow there for me. Yeah, it was opening up a new field for you, like in like a more natural field. Yes, yeah, yeah. I did one. I knew what else I wanted to do next. I couldn't wait. I was, mm-hmm. you know, running down to. There were a lot of fabric stores on Orchard Street at that point that aren't really there anymore. But um, there were discount stores that were like eight blocks away. You became the yeah. best <laughs> I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like. Yeah. Do you have? Do you have this? With do you have two hundred yards of this, please? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it is kind of especially at that time not because now much more is possible but still it's kind of daring to use these what to quote female craft fabric sewing stuff were you aware at that time also of the difference in the reception of the materials and in the reception of women and men artists hmm. you know there were people in the very early years of coming to my studio who who thought I had gone to fashion school or understood it to be design in some way and mm-hmm. had some, you know, just struggled to get to uh, get their brain around the fact that I saw it as sculpture. But, you know, there was things that had influenced me, like the Louise Bourgeois. And there's this picture of her standing, I guess, on a on a sidewalk near a brownstone where she's wearing this crazy outfit that she's made with these breasty-like forms all over it that was out there in the world. 
Kobe, the artist I shared this space with, was friends with Kusama at that point, or had been when he first moved to New York. He was uh, another, you know, transplant, and he introduced me to her work. I wondered recently when I was wrote something for the show that I created, Susan's, and uh, I wondered if he had um, brought it up with me because he was really interested or because he thought I was really would be interested. But in any case, of course, I was really taken by uh, Kusama's work and, you know, a moment, of course, when people weren't looking at it so much. Especially Louise Bourgeois, Kusama, they've been there for, you know, for decades. And they have. But yeah, yeah, there was a moment when they weren't there. Yeah. Not with so much attention at that time. They, the t attention they get now is like unprecedented. So, Right, right. It's funny to think about. Yeah. I had a friend who was working for Lorraine O'Grady, and uh, I became aware of the performance that she did at the New Museum, the clothing that she wore, which was covered in gloves that she had sewn into a costume. So it wasn't like it was coming from nowhere, my interest. It was there, but it, it took probably a while to take its space. It was there in the air, and there there were shows. There was a show that Marcia Tucker curated at the New Museum, I think probably 1994, called Bad Girls, that had a lot of women doing different kinds of material, and they had it was two parts, and there was a part in L.A. There were a few big shows that I was part of that involved mostly women. There was a show called Plastic Fantastic Lover that Catherine Liu curated at Blumhelman that was all women. And a lot of the women were doing materials that weren't quite what you'd seen at that point as sculpture materials. And it was sculpture, women doing sculpture. Is ceramics also kind of like part of that material? Because I remember that like many, many years ago, also decades ago, ceramics was also considered to be a craft material and not an art material. And that changed a lot But how was it at that time? Because you, at some point, also started working with ceramics. Right, right. You know, I got a teaching job in New Jersey, and I needed to teach ceramics as well as sculpture. And I just learned how to do ceramics. And I didn't have <laughs> okay. any huge draw for it, <laughs> but uh, I scrambled. I really needed, you know, I needed the gig. And uh, I, um, and then I loved it. Sometimes it happens like that, yeah. Sometimes it happens like that. So, uh, yeah, when I started making ceramics, I loved it. And I and I saw that, I don't know, in particular with ceramics, I thought there is just so much more that could be happening here. Mm -hmm. There was uh, Peter Volkos, had, um, I saw him speak, and he was uh, someone working with craft in a very aggressive, you know, messy way that was inspiring to me. The whole territory of craft felt obvious to me that would be somewhere that was of interest. And it's been interesting watching it evolve and come to a bigger place within the context of art. Yeah. In the context of the independent, what you're showing there, and you will be having two presentations with Cap and Cap and with uh, Susan Inglot and specific objects who do joint booth. What is it, what you will be showing there? I know it is Pornography is a part of the presentation at uh, England and specific objects. And what is the differences in these two exhibitions you do? Uh, well, the CapCap -Cap, um, exhibition uh, presentation is a two-person pairing. So it's mm -hmm. me with Stanley Steller, who has worked with CapCap -Cap for a little while and does black and white photography and uh, beautiful 
tender, tough pictures. Um, <laughs> and that presentation, we're given this spot that's a skybox. So it's a little bit at the edge of the fair, up some stairs and uh, sort of a, I guess, like was built to be a kind of VIP lounge or something, mm-hmm. but they've been using it at the fair. So it has a little um, back room kind of feeling maybe, I guess. So I've been working for a while on these painting, I'm calling them paintings for lack of a better word, but this one I'm showing is collage. It has fabric on it. It has paint. I've been working with piles of old magazines, penthouses from the 90s is where I started, and drawing and painting on top of them and editing out certain bits and kind of... Which bits? <laughs> Good question. There's the question. Which bits? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the idea was when I started that I thought I would take on the task of like fixing the porn that was existing. Fixing, making it like more female positive, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I guess you could say that. I decided to call it the Feminist Responsibility Project. You know, it was a moment I was doing them at the kitchen table. I thought there was something I could do with these magazines and I just decided to edit them, like censor them. But see if I could leave some sexy in and take out the parts that I found that made me uncomfortable, that felt more, you know, exploitative in a way that wasn't what I wanted to look at. So I took out what I didn't want to look at and left in what I did. And then I thought, what the heck am I doing here? So I thought, well, maybe it's like the responsibility project. Like, I'll fix all the porn, everybody. You know, you can thank me later. I think it's such a great name. The Feminist Responsibility Project. I think it's really, yeah. Yeah, do this, please. <laughs> and of course, nobody cares about an old print magazine either. So there's also mm-hmm. that, you know, like to take over that job was uh, thankless and would go on forever. But also everyone else has evolved into everything online and a much more. The magazines that like Penthouse and Playboy from the 80s and 90s uh, forward are look pretty low-key and soft compared to what is out there. Yes. Ever, I suppose. But, um, you know, a lot of them have very nice production values. They were good magazines mm-hmm. for certain periods with very good photographers, well printed. And, um, you know, you could see when uh, things went downhill for the magazine industry and paper got cheaper and fingernail uh, polish might be chipped or something, you know. Yeah, it's showing culture in itself. Right, it shows its own its own history. How did people react when you fixed it? I mean, on the fixings, how did women and how did men react when, when they saw it? Well, you know, I went for a while without showing them to anyone. Like I was just had a little personal project going and uh, it was a moment where there was that word responsibility was being like was kind of in the this is like George Bush, you know, <laughs> uh, years. The, the second bush. And you heard these kind of words tossed around on the radio. Like responsibility was a big word that was being bantered around that seemed particularly ill-used that I thought I would just grab. <laughs> you know, at some point I showed them to the right person and I showed them at the Tang Museum up at Skidmore College with uh, Ian Barry. Pretty soon after that, I started thinking about scale. I showed them and almost immediately wanted to go bigger I just love scale. Getting high-end scans made, getting them printed on paper and then canvas, stretching the canvas, and then working back into them again with a lot of the same 
tools, perhaps scaled up, you know, so ink and pens and some collage elements. So they got more complicated. In a way, sometimes it is hard to see what I might have altered in phase one, drawing them on magazine page, or in phase two, when I go back in and they're large. Will you also be showing some of the original magazines? I'm showing the works on magazine page with Susan England and a specific object. And then I'm showing a triptych that's three parts that are each 40 by 60 with cap cap. 40 by 60, is that the scale where scale for you begins? What is the size when you think, yeah, that, that's scale enough for me? I liked bringing them up so that the figures that were blown up became life-size or bigger. And that's the point where, you know, if I see a hand, if I put my hand out, it's about the same size. Often they are very much in scale to the smaller of my dress pieces, I'd say. I was just actually talking yesterday to um, Susan and David, and they taught me a little bit about this pawn works. For me, it's a little bit irritating always when I think of Playboy or something. I, I, I wouldn't use the word porn, at least not today. Right, right. It feels to be too soft for that. Right, right. To have the porn. But those two booths are content-wise related with Susan and specific objects. There will be the original pages. And will they be framed or how do you display them? They're framed, matted and framed. Susan, I think we're going to have also a, um, a painting. So one larger painting. I mean, it's wonderful to have the chance to show with uh, Kusama and with Linda Benglis in the booth at Susan England. And it's a hardcore feminist booth. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. Yeah. You know, Linda Benglis, it seems, made T-shirts to fund her famous ad and art forum. And David, who's an amazing collector, you may have covered that when you talked to him yesterday, but yeah, made these T-shirts. Had Linda Benglis had these T-shirts made to help her fund taking out an ad and art forum. And David has these original T-shirts, which is just fantastic. And especially also Kusama, because you said mm -hmm. that she was an influence for you and that you looked at that. Yes. So, yes. so she's the oldest and you're the youngest, actually. You're the youngster. Isn't, I, isn't that great? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I think Stanley Stiller is probably um, a little bit older than me, too. So mm -hmm. in the two booths where you know, I kid. have the opportunity with three different. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. So I <laughs> can appreciate that. Will you be there for installing your work also? Will you see how that goes or will you leave it to the gallerists? At the specific object booth, I will definitely leave it to them. They have a very particular thing that they're doing. I'm sure they'll be very tuned into the place where the three of us, the three artists they're showing, you know, meet or pull and push against each other. The CapCap booth we've is an, like I mentioned, a rather unusual booth because it has this sort of lounge feeling to it, lower ceilings and an intimate room that you, you need to climb the stairs to get to. And then it has a big window that looks down on the art fair. And we picked a kind of nook to place this piece. The piece that I'm showing is very pink by chance and sits on some bricks that are covered in glitter and duct tape. So I need to be there to. We'll be sure that we'll, I'll definitely get involved with installing and we'll be sure we 
that the spot that we have in mind looks the same after they get in there and build some walls and do some lighting for us, I think it'll probably go as as planned. But yeah, I'd be a little more involved probably with the CapCap install. Yeah, when I was speaking to Susan and David, it was a lot about also the history of the books and the ephemera and also the history of feminist art that included pornography. And I was always wondering or I was always trying to get that conversation into our times. So why, why do you think it is important really again to show women dealing with sexuality? In a way, both booths have this vibe of like sex positivity. But in a way, I said mine is actually sex negative because I'm pushing down the sexuality. It's not completely true because the subject matter is there. But um, you're pushing down the male gaze. Yes, if one could. I mean, it's complicated, and all of our viewing is all immersed in the same soup. So to go all the way back here to the very beginning of our conversation, my parents were from the deep south. My grandmother that I was close to spent most of her life in the mountains of Tennessee. And then she transplants to the Maryland suburbs late in her life. I was raised much more like, you know, at the beginning anyway, we went to church and it was a strictness. Things changed when the 70s hit everywhere. Even as I'm pulling up the sexuality, the pushing down also has an intense modesty that was part of my upbringing. And this is still a part of you? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I felt sometimes when I'd be drawing at the kitchen table, like I was like literally like channeling my grandmother. It was like a performance drawing them instead of just me drawing them. And I would be like, turn a page and go, oh my God. Oh no, this can't, oh, whoop, whoop, you know, like this has to be fixed immediately. This has to be fixed. This has to be fixed. That is interesting. Like before all the social media and this selfie attention seeking sex thing that you get in your face, how women artists use their bodies in the 60s and 70s as a means of emancipation, also their nakedness, also their right, sexuality right. to say like, I'm a free woman, you know, and how that kind of like got turned around in right. the past right. decades and suddenly nakedness is, I don't know, it's kind of like a weird thing. And I thought maybe these presentations, these two booths, maybe they are also a kind of reclaiming that, you know, that we say what we think sexuality is and we say what the nude body is and what we think about that. Right, right, right. You know, what I'm interested in is the complexity of it. It's a subject matter that mm -hmm. yields lots of questions without so much in the way of answers. There's so many ways that it keeps kind of flipping that something that feels like uh, freedom might be having an exploitive feeling when someone else is looking at it. Oh, yeah. You know, when I talk about the kitchen table and feeling digging into this shocked place, there's also this way where if you're so shocked, why did the last three hours go by where you're just staring at these magazines? You know, like, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> like, uh, all these places and all these feelings are a rich territory that I appreciate not having answers to and um, keeps me interested. So it's complex. It's much more complex. Mm. What I like is complexity. Yeah, the complexity of it. I mean, I definitely think this place where women might have felt one way about pornography from the time. With the Kusama and the Linda Bengals would be from the 60s, do you think? Do you remember what those dates were? I think the Linda Bengals 
ad, you know, with a dildo. I think that was the 80s. Mm -hmm. Or was it late 70s? 80s. I mean, mm -hmm. David told mm -hmm. me. Maybe 70s, yeah. Maybe. Right. But it's right. it's going to be online. Right. And so I don't feel the responsibility to say the exact date now. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's just Google, Google it. Just Google. Google. Let's yeah, chat yeah. GPT it. Yeah. So yeah. Um, last question. <laughs> What are you looking forward to when you think of that presentations? Hmm. You know, in both cases, I'm just excited to see the interactions with the other artists. What's really interesting is the mix to show with these Stanley Stellar photographs and get to show with the Kusama and Linda Bengals and see what kind of dialogue comes out of them. I'm, it's really interesting that both of them ended up being booths with multiple artists. Booth usually is a fairly tight space, very different from being in a, even a group exhibition, you know, to get to see things really side by side like that. I can't wait. Yeah. yeah. So it goes back actually to relations. Mm, that's nice. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you, Beverly. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. This was a special Voices on Art episode created in collaboration with Independent Art Fair New York. Listen to it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice, on our website van-on.net and in the Independent OVR at independenthq.com. Follow Independent Art Fair on Instagram at independent underscore HQ and the podcast at Voices on Art and at van underscore horn underscore Düsseldorf. Thank you for listening to Voices on Art, the Fan Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Stay tuned and connect. <laughs>